Would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of John? We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, and we'll be in the 8th chapter. By way of background, the Gospel of John was written in the first century by the historical figure John the son of Zebedee, who was a fisherman and more importantly a close friend of the historic Jesus of Nazareth, who we believe as Christians to be God the Son in the flesh. This belief that the historical Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, is strongly supported by this historic book, the Gospel of John, because John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, was an eyewitness of Jesus and a part of the eyewitness community. In fact, he was in his inner circle and knew him intimately. Who not better to hear from with regard to wanting to get to know Jesus more, who not to hear from than one who knew him closely? If you want to find out about a person, you ask their friends. You ask those who, who knew them. You say, tell, tell me about, you know, I, maybe you didn't have a chance to meet your grandfather or something, but you, you know people who knew him, and you can say, tell me, what was he like? You know, was he funny? Was he, was he, was he uh, you know, like cool? Was he awkward? Tell me about, you know, my grandfather where I haven't met. And so, too, we have this account so that we can meet, we can know, and we can grow in Christ. Mind you, we are not merely reading an account that is giving us information. This account is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit used John to write this down, and the Spirit uses what John has written down in order to draw us not just in the knowledge of God, but the experience of Him. Hopefully by now you have the Gospel of John open. I want to kind of park it right here. I gave you some context. I just want to park it right here to offer an introduction to today's message. This Sunday is a special day in our nation. It is Father's Day. Riffing on Father's Day this morning, I've entitled my sermon, Who's Yo Daddy? Who's Your Daddy? And we're going to see this morning in the Gospel of John in the 8th chapter uh, why this question is fitting from this colloquialism of our day. Jesus basically is going to ask his listeners this question, Who's, who's Your Daddy? Uh, who, who is he? And in a moment, we will see this question coming out of the text of John chapter 8. But first, by way of introduction to the topic of daddies, let me begin by reflecting on today's celebration. This Sunday is a special day, as I said, in our nation. It's, it's Father's Day. Uh, I, I saw someone, incidentally, uh, th- just this morning, who uh, you know, ranked holidays in terms of like, you know, number one across the world is, is Christmas, and then number two is Mother's Day, and Father's Day is like way down the list. And there's a whole bunch of other holidays in this list that I'd never even heard of. So it is a special day, but, uh, you know, it's not as special as some of the other days in our culture. But it's a celebration honoring fathers and celebrating fatherhood in general. America is not alone in this celebration. Many countries celebrate Father's Day on the third Sunday of June, uh, some do it on other days, but it's a, it's a global phenomenon. In, in the, the context of North America, our celebration began in the early 20th century to complement Mother's Day in celebrating fatherhood. Father's Day really began in our country with the driving force of a figure named Sonora Smart in 1910. When Sonora was 16, her mother died in childbirth with her sixth child. Sonora was the only daughter. Her father, William Jackson Smart, was a Civil War veteran. He reared his six children as a a single parent. Uh, Sonora Smart held her father in great esteem. While hearing a church sermon about the newly recognized Mother's Day in 1909, Sonora felt strongly that fatherhood needed recognition as well. She approached her pastor, 
at the Spokane Ministerial Alliance and suggested her own father's birthday of June 5th as the day of honor for fathers. The Allegiance uh, took the idea and, and ended up making it the third Sunday in June. The first Father's Day was celebrated June 19th in 1910 in Spokane, Washington. The idea of Father's Day spread from there. It became popular and was embraced across the nation. In 1916, President Woodrow Wilson came to Spokane, and he spoke of, uh, at Father's Day services there. And in 1966, President Lyndon Johnson signed a presidential proclamation declaring the third Sunday of June as Father's Day. In 1972, President Nixon established a permanent national observance of Father's Day to be held on the third Sunday of June each year. And so here we are. Maybe you're like Sonora, maybe you had an awesome dad who held down the fort, who suffered loss and, and was amazing. Maybe not. Maybe your, your father wasn't like Sonora's dad. Maybe, maybe your, your, your father wasn't like William Jackson Smart. Maybe you, you don't even know your dad. There's some who've never met their fathers. And Father's Day, as a result, comes with a mix of emotions. Yesterday, I read an article that was written in the New York Times just yesterday by Esau McCauley, who's a, a fellow brother in Christ. In this article, he writes, I do not recall giving a single Father's Day present. There were no cards hastily scribbled on color paper during elementary sc school art class. My dad, received the my dad never received the barbecue apron with a silly message on it. My siblings cannot recall ever giving him gifts either. This was no joint decision. It was an instinctive shared response to trauma. Father's Day reminded us of what we didn't have, the father to do all the things we saw other fathers do. We wanted him to cheer for us at sporting events. We wanted him to deliver the wise quip that embarrassed us in front of our friends or pass along the wisdom that might guide us through the complexities of being young and black in Alabama that had little patience uh, for the fabulies of of, of its darker citizens, but Providence did not deliver us that type of a father. We shared a city, if, if not often a home, with a man troubled by addiction. He came and went in our lives, his presence and absence coinciding with cycles of sobriety and relapse. For a long time, all I felt about him was anger, because he seemed to care more about drugs than his children. It's a, a powerful article uh, in, in, in the New York Post. It, I, I mean, you know, reading it, or New York Times, excuse me, reading it just stirred all kinds of emotions. Uh, thinking in my own life of uh, being raised uh, with divorced parents and step-parents and whatnot and things that can come around uh, the holiday. But with that, what is exciting for us as Christians, though we can have a mix of emotions with regard to our earthly fathers, we have a unified emotion with regard to our Heavenly Father. Amen? As, as Christians, we celebrate a perfect Father in God the Father. God the Father, when we say God the Father, we're not saying this adjectivally as though we are speaking of one who is merely fatherly. Yes, God is fatherly, but in the triune God, there is a Father, the Father. Understand, as Christians, we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is an actual Father. This is not a mere title that, that we're calling Him. There, there are fathers in the earth because there is a Father in heaven. We're made in His image to reflect Him. We have an eternal Father in God. Further, we have an eternal Son in God, and it is through the Son that we have been made sons and daughters of God. 
This God that I am sharing with you about is the God of creation. He's the God who created the universe and all that is in it. He is a God who created uh, all things and a God who lavished His love upon all things. His love was unrequited. His love was rejected by His creation. And as a result, the creation has been disarray. We were made to be in His family. We were made to be in His home. We were made to be His children. But we ran astray. We joined a rebel army. In fact, the kingdom of darkness. And all of humanity is therefore in this hostility with regard to God as their Father. They reject his fatherly reign and, and love in their lives. Uh, we think of the famous uh, parable that Jesus gave of the parable of the prodigal son who forsakes his father and runs off and does his own thing. And what does that father do? That, that father's heart breaks for his son. That father goes to his son and reconciles with him. That parable serves as a reminder that there is no one, there is no one here today that, that has done something so heinous as to cause you to run from Him and know that he doesn't, he doesn't love you, He doesn't have a place for you. He beckons you and He calls you in the Son to return to Him. To repent of living for yourself. Repent just means to turn from. To turn your back on living for yourself and to be embraced by Him. To come and know Him. To be forgiven by Him. And you see, that forgiveness isn't a, a, a mere passing, oh yeah, I forgive you. See, the Father has sent the Son to make a payment for our sins. He is the giver of life. He is the creator. So the consequence of rebelling against Him is the taking back of life. And so the Father sends the Son and has the Son enter humanity, becoming a man. And as a man, He dies in our place. Further, as a, a, a man, He then does what we have not done. He has lived an innocent life. And He can give His innocent life in exchange for our rebellion. Because of the Son, we are made sons and daughters of Him. When by the work of the Spirit, we are regenerated and brought in repentance and faith, and the Father becomes our Father. So regardless of what our earthly fathers were like, some stellar, some not so, we can all rejoice and give thanks that we have a Father in Heaven. Now, let's move into the text. Let's move into the teaching of the Christ We've moved into today's celebration, into teaching from the Christ. The Christ is the eternal Son in the flesh. Christ is not His last name, incidentally. People say, Jesus Christ, that's not His last name. It is a title for Messiah, Christos. He has come in fulfillment of the promises that were made in Scripture to fallen humanity, that one would restore, one would renew, one would make the payment for our sins. By the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, which I've asked you to turn to, Jesus is facing a great deal of hostility from uh, specifically spiritual types who are hating on Him. In John chapter 7, if you look at chapter 7, verse uh, 53 up through eight eleven, the spiritual authorities uh, bring Jesus a woman who they claim has committed adultery, which in that culture was a capital offense. And they're, they're trying to then use this poor woman to trap Jesus in order to get him canceled. Uh, what should we do with this woman? On the one hand, if he enforces the strictness of the law, that's going to alienate him from uh, particular groups who have been following him. On the other hand, if he, he goes the other way and says, well, no, you shouldn't do that, that's going to alienate him from others. So it's a setup. It's a setup. We, we are setting you up. We want to get you canceled. After this, in John chapter 8, if you look at verse 12, in fact, from verse 12 through verse 59, we have a big pericope where Jesus begins a round of teaching 
in the face of these spiritual types who are trying to set him up. They're, they're waiting to pounce. They want to get a sound clip. They want, they want to catch a little something that they could throw up on TikTok, manipulate it, and, and marginalize the message of the Messiah. So Jesus, in this section, this is just to give you context as we jump in, he has a round of teaching in the face of the haters, and he centers his teaching on his identity, his divine origin as one who is eternal with the Father, uh, his relationship with God the Father as the Father's unique Son, uncreated, the unique eternal Son. Let's jump in at verse 30, and we will work from verse 30 through verse 59 this morning, and I will surface from this section four themes. The first of the four themes is freedom and slavery. John chapter 8, verse 30. As he, Jesus, spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those uh, Jewish people who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus speaks of his words having the ability, indeed the power, to set people free. The antithesis of this freedom uh, is, is slavery. The, the antithesis of this freedom that, that is being found believing in him, that's the freedom. The antithesis of this is slavery, which is found in sin. If you're found in him, you have freedom. If you're found in sin, you have slavery. Sin is slavery. What a fitting metaphor for sin. That is slavery. You, you think about, you know, what slavery is, and you then think about that metaphor that being in sin is slavery. In slavery, you are owned by another against your will. Someone tells you what time you wake up, what time you go to bed, what you're going to eat, and what you're going to do. You have a master who is dictating where you go, what you do, and the rest. That, that's what slavery is. You are owned by another, possessed by another. In this life, if you take the time to reflect on your moral behavior or even your just general thinking and feeling, you know there are moments where we feel the powerlessness under sin, where you tell yourself, I'm not going to do that again, and you do. Tomorrow, I'm going to stop, and tomorrow comes, and you didn't. Well, I can stop at any time I want to, you rationalize, but really you can't. You're trapped. You're ensnared. Why is that? Because as Jesus is teaching, sin is like slavery. Verse 34, draw your eyes back at the text. Jesus answered them, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In our culture, we place a premium on freedom, don't we? In fact, in some ways, uh, freedom is deified. Freedom is worshipped as a god in our culture. Uh, particularly when in the name of freedom, we do uh, what goes against God. We worship our freedom as a god. I think of, you know, uh, you know when, when uh, we make statements as believers like, hey, that's, that's wrong, or hey, you shouldn't do that, you know, who are you to tell me, you see, is the response often, because you're infringing on their freedoms. You, you can't tell me what to do. This is my body. I can do what I want with it, people say. Even when it's actually not their body, they use that kind of rhetoric. Freedom is actually not freedom. It's slavery, Jesus is teaching us. Being enslaved to forces of darkness that are fed by our fallen pride. Speaking of pride, we're in Pride Month. Uh, what, what, uh, what peppermint is to December, um, the rainbow is to June. Pride Month is the quintessential uh, uh, thing where Christians are, are starting to realize, like, 
hey, this is what our Bible teaches in terms of the kind of quintessential human sin. It's pride. It's a peculiar thing for us to see celebrated in that regard because pride comes before the fall, the Scriptures teach us. Um, we, we see that in the book of Genesis. At the very beginning of the aforementioned rebellion against God, humanity is, is duped by the kingdom of darkness, and, 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 and how they are duped involve their pride and their will and doing what they wanted to do. As one commentator notes, it doesn't matter what our Creator, who designed us, knows what's best for us, loves us, and died for us, says... To the proud heart, what matters is simply what we want, what sinful, fallible human beings who do not know everything are in rebellion against God and have depraved minds and desires want. Pride always leads to more sin as we arrogantly think more of ourselves and less of God in His revealed Word. It's really people shaking their fist at God to declare that they are autonomous and can do whatever they want. Um, if you've been uh, living under a bubble or something, you're like, Pride Month, what's that? Uh, or you've missed the last two Sundays. I've been uh, trying to address uh, various facets of it with regard to what the Scriptures would say in terms of how we think about it and respond. Uh, Pride Month is a celebration of what's known as the LGBTQIA lifestyle, uh, which is an acronym that stands for uh, various ways of engaging in uh, sexuality that would go against uh, what we believe the Scriptures teach with regard to how God has made us. As a result of this belief, we find ourselves a lot like Jesus in John 8 with our culture, very antagonistically trying to trap us and, and cancel us and, and press into us and, and paint us into something that we are not simply because we believe that our Creator has the final say because He created us with regard to how we live and what we do with our bodies. The culture is revving up uh, a lot this month. Uh, you turn on the TV, you turn on YouTube, the media, social media or whatever, there is a whole lot of canceling going on. But for the church, I've been trying to process this with us this month because I'm concerned that the kind of cancel culture doesn't get into the church so that the church is responding the way the world does. Uh, the, you know, you, you have like on one extreme Don Lemon, on one extreme Tucker Carlson. Incidentally, they both got canceled. So, uh, you know, and uh, I'm not disparaging listening to, uh, you know, either of those voices. Uh, well, Don Lemon particularly annoys me. But, you know, it, it's, it's, the, it's this weird cultural moment where you get people who are barking at each other and they're angry at each other. And uh, if we're not careful, because the fact of the matter is, and, and this is just a sad reality I've had in recent years. I, as a pastor, uh, the media disciples people in the church more than the pastor does. Because they're consuming it every day, hours on end. And, uh, you know, the Wednesday night Bible study and the Sunday morning Bible study, I, I just can't keep up with it. Um, people are, are sitting at a well of hostility and, and antagonism and polarization and the rest. And so, so pastorally, my reminder to the church in a month like this is that we not behave the way the world does, but we follow the lead of our Master who is actually teaching us some things here that are really important for us. The world cancels. We, that, is not, that is not a tactic for the Christian. We're called not to cancel, but to have compassion. Uh, when you think about it in particular, too, um, this is a community that uh, historically has, has suffered certain injustices against it, which that's something we can commemorate. We should be able to stand with any group of people who have had their rights unjustly violated and say, hey, that was wrong. Uh, th that was abusive. That was wrong. We stand with you in that. But that is far different than standing in celebration of a particular lifestyle that we don't agree with. And with regard to that lifestyle, 
with regard to uh, our worldview and ways of thinking about it, we see Jesus on the move rescuing people out of this lifestyle all the time. And as we hear testimonies of this, we are, we are reminded that the Creator is compassionate and the Creator isn't canceling, but the Creator is on the move going to the prodigals and changing their lives. Listen to this testimony by Dr. David Kyle Foster. For over 10 years, I lived the homosexual lifestyle. To those who suggest that I was never homosexual, my response is, does sleeping with over a thousand men count? Oh yes, I was homosexual. Though like most, I never wanted to have such attractions. Having same-sex desires is a great trial. There is no doubt about it. The feelings have a, a great intensity as those found in the alcoholic for alcohol, the drug addict for drugs, the smoker for nicotine. And in all such cases, it seems unfair to the natural mind that God would allow us to have such intense desires and yet not act on them. Homosexual behavior also tears at the soul, causing much higher rates of substance abuse, suicide, depression, domestic violence, early death, even in the most gay-friendly regions of the globe. Why? Because active homosexuals are trying to find something through gay relationships that can never be found there. The happiness that they seek can only be found in submitting their sexuality to the Lordship of Christ and allowing him to bring healing to the broken areas that have caused their homosexual desires. Yes, it's a slow and sometimes arduous path to take, just as it is for the addict, but the only one that leads to joy, peace, and eternal life with God. It's a wonderful article, and I love uh, testimonies like this, testimonies of those who have been rescued and changed, and they know the grace of God. Uh, the, the goal of the, of the Christian ambassador is not to win a culture war or have a gotcha moment. We are, we are pleading for souls. And we too are reminded of, of our own darkness. This isn't, you know, we can, we, we, we can add in terms of Christian ethics to the LGBTQIA. We can add an F, fornication. We can add an A, adultery. We can add an L, lust. Uh, we're, we're not exempt from these sorts of things. Christ has lordship over what we do with our bodies. He's the creator. It's his prerogative. It's his, it's his right to do so. So as we enter into these cultural moments, we want to lean into Jesus and see Jesus' heart and, and, and seek to have his heart in our lives. Draw your eyes back at the text. Let's let him shape our heart. He says, if the Son, if the Son, look at verse 36, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. He's rescuing people from sin. He's setting them free. He's setting captives free. This is one of the things that's so interesting in our modern modern cultural moment because with regard to sexual ethics uh, and the pride community, they have hijacked the civil rights movement and have made this into a matter of civil rights. And so, so it's sort of painted as the new you know, Jim Crow situation, where we think of white supremacy and oppression in North America and what was done to, to precious black bodies made in the image of God in, in, in our nation's history. You say, that's horrible. Well, now this is being painted as the new Jim Crow or the new black. The fact of the matter is, I don't know anyone who used to be black, and I know scores of people who used to be an L, a G, a B, a T, a Q, because Christ rescues, Christ transforms. Christ reigns. Look at, look at the verse before verse 36. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The slave, verse 35, does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. What is Jesus saying? 
Well, a slave has no standing as a family member, but a son does. In Genesis 21, verse 10, we read that a slave's woman's son will never share an inheritance with a free woman's son. Uh, you, you don't have inheritance as a slave. In saying that, uh, let, me, uh, let me insert a sidebar here because often the Bible is attacked as some kind of pro-slavery document or something like this. The Bible doesn't prescribe slavery, never, ever, ever does it, but it describes it. The Bible describes adultery, the Bible describes sexual perversion, the Bible describes human trafficking, the Bible describes murder, the Bible describes slavery, but describing something is different from prescribing it, and that's a, a very poor tactic on the part of skeptics of the Bible who want to pull it out of context so as to attack it. The point at hand is sons, children have inheritance, slaves don't. I am the son, Jesus is saying, and I have come to make you sons to give you an inheritance. He's inviting slaves to become sons. And you know what? He makes good on his promise. Uh, in, in this room, we could just pass the microphone around to people who are trapped in addiction, who are, who are trapped in the darkness, who are slaves of the darkness, and you had your lives changed when someone came to you and shared with you about this one called Jesus who died as an atonement for the sins of his people and invited you to receive that, that gift uh, this room is filled with those who have been set free. And, and, and the scriptures are filled with this invitation to be set free. I think of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6.20. Uh, he writes to the Romans and he says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. He speaks of Christ setting them free from this slavery and giving them this great gift of righteousness imputed to their account. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I'll put it in front of you. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In Paul's writings in Galatians and in, in, in Romans, he picks up what we call a theology of adoption. To describe God saving us, he uses adoption as a, as a metaphor. And more than a metaphor, it's an actual reality. We rebelled against the giver of life. We were cast out of his presence. And now the Son has come, and by the Spirit, He goes and He rescues captives, and, and the work of the Spirit brings us into an adoption in God's family. We have been made children of God. What a, what a powerful, life-changing thing. To be orphaned, to be without home. We know even in our culture, statistically, what happens to those who are orphaned, who are never welcomed into a home. Mental health, criminality, uh, incarceration, uh, physical health, and so on. To, to not have a father, to not have a loving home to be in. And so the Bible uses that to say, hey, look at what God has done. He's adopted us. There are no orphans in Christ's family. He has made us all sons and daughters of Him. Now, we, we skipped over a verse. If you draw your eyes back to the text, look at verse 33. Verse 33, they respond to Jesus talking about this, this metaphor of slavery and sin. They answered, verse 33, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? This is a really interesting retort. Um, if you know your Bible well, I mean, you're, probably your first th thought would be, never slaves to anyone? Have you read the book of Exodus? Uh, you know, there's that whole Pharaoh thing. Uh, you have been slaves before. Um, but in response to this, a New Testament scholar who I enjoy reading, Dr. Kostenberger, writes, follow me, freedom was considered the birthright of every Jew. God's law laid down that no Jew, however poor, must ever descend to the level of a slave. 
Quoting Leviticus 25, If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. Because the Israelites are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. End quote. Again, what I said a moment ago with regard to slavery in the Bible and endorsing it, Leviticus 25 is clear on that note. You, you, aren't, you aren't to do that. A further, Kostenberger notes from the Jewish Talmud, um, he quotes from a section of the Talmud, all Israel are royal children. They are subjects of the kingdom. And so, so this is a natural response then to what Jesus is saying because he's accusing them. That, well, I, I mean, he's not accusing them. He's, he's in the right. They're, they're slaves to sin. They've come to trap him. They've come to cancel him. They, they, they've come to, you know, uh, just, uh, just go crazy on the Twitter and say stuff about him that's not true and whatnot. And so Jesus is appealing to them and saying, hey, look, don't you want to be set free from this? Don't you want to come from that side of hate and antagonism and be welcomed and loved? And, and it's going over their heads. They're, looking, they're, they're so busy trying to find something wrong with him that they're missing the invitation that is before them. It, it's, it's absolutely insane. Do you, do you know who is in front of you? He, he, this, is, this is God the Son in the flesh in front of you who's come, who's come to save you and, and you're busy trying to find something to, to cancel Him. Do, do you not see what's going on? You're slaves to this. You can't even see this. You can't think otherwise because you're a slave to it. Look at verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Jesus says, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. This is where the title of today's message comes from. Who's your daddy? Jesus, Jesus is pointing out to them, Look, there's only two options here. Either you are children of your father, the devil, or you are children of God, the father. This brings us to point B on the outline in terms of surfacing these four themes. We move from freedom and slavery to the Father and Satan. Draw your eyes at verse 43. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? Is, is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a, a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is a, 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 you know, a hard, sobering truth for people, particularly people who aren't interested in the reality of God, that you're under the spell of the father of lies, who's a liar from the beginning, who's a murderer from the beginning, who, who, who duped humanity, preyed on their pride, and brought us this fall, who himself was fallen because of his own pride. This goes back to the very beginning of the Bible here, in the book of Genesis. Jesus takes it back to the beginning, and he says, this is in your nature. 
The father's nature, the, the father of darkness, the devil, his nature is lying and, and murder. It's in his nature. It's what he is. This is what's so dangerous with regard to Pride Month and our, our culture's doctrines when people say things like, well, I was born this way. Well, that's a claim that it's your nature to be this way. But you can't get a, an, an ought from an is. I mean, and, and in terms of Christian belief, we believe we're all born sinners, and, and, that, and so that, that doesn't even make sense to us when you say, well, I was born this way, but that doesn't justify anything. This is in your nature, but it doesn't make it right. This is in your nature to be the father of lies and to be the murderer from the beginning, but that doesn't make the devil right any more than if someone said, I, I, I was born with particular uh, you know, uh, genetic disposition that makes me a sociopath, does it justify the behavior of a sociopath? We know clinically that people with all sorts of uh, sociopathic behavior have certain genetic predispositions. You might see C-fibers firing in their frontal lobes, but that doesn't justify you being angry or killing someone. You can't get an ought from an is. Back to the point of the passage, though, Jesus says this is in his nature, and so too it's in your nature because he's your father. Where did this all start? It started at the very beginning. And we, we heard the beginning. I shared with you about the Creator who made us and we rebelled against Him. This brings us back to the book of Genesis. On the heels of our rebellion, though, God the Father comes and He brings a message of good news. We made a mess of things. We rebelled against Him. In Genesis 3.15, we read God saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the devil, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your seed, devil, and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's, it's a, a bit cryptic. It, it's, it's alluding to some things, and as you read the whole storyline of the Bible, you see that this is an amazing prophecy. In fact, we refer to it as the Proto-Evangelion. Evangelion is a word for news, for good news. Ooh, you think of eucalyptus trees. Ooh means good. Angelion uh, uh, is a message. This is a good message. This is the proto. It's the first giving of the message. You think of John 3.16, for God uh, loved the world in this way, that while, we, you know, uh, he, he's, he, you know, you, oh, that's good news, John 3.16. Well, Genesis 3.15 is good news. And it's the first giving of the good news. Let's examine this quickly because it helps us to understand what Jesus is getting at in John 8. Uh, this prophecy of one who's going to come through the woman who's going to crush the devil. There are three levels of enmity in the text of Genesis 3.15. God says that he is putting enmity, that is hostility to the point of killing each other. That's what enmity means. He's putting enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. Okay, there's three levels of enmity here. First, it says an enmity between the one seed of the woman and the serpent. Now, this part of the threefold enmity, this part of the prophecy foresees a single seed who will come par excellence, who will be wounded on the heel in a victorious battle over the devil and evil in the universe, crushing its head. Uh, he will be wounded. It's not a fatal wound. It's to the heel. However, the seed wickedness, the devil, will be crushed. It is to the head. It is, it is a, a real wound, nonetheless, to be wounded on the heel. And that wounding, of course, is picked up at the cross of Calvary when Jesus pours out his blood for our sins. When Jesus, the prophesied seed, was tortured for the sins of his people, dying vicariously for them and raising up victoriously from the dead to break the power of death and sin. You know, the problem in the universe is sin, which Adam and Eve opened the door to. 
uh, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Adam. There, there's jokes about how there's going to be a long line in, in heaven, uh, you know, to, to have a, a talk with Adam. Um, any, anyway, the, you guys didn't think that was funny. Okay, so, and uh, the result, tough crowd, and the result of that sin is death. Uh, so the universe, to be set right again, sin and death needs to be dealt with. It needs to be handled. If I, if I lent you my car, uh, which isn't saying much because it's in the shop right now, uh, but if I lent you my car and you took it out and crashed it, uh, which would actually be a wonderful thing if anyone wants to volunteer. Um, my wife's like, I don't, I'm not going to drive that car anymore. So uh, anyway, uh, put it out of its misery. So if I lent you, I'm ruining my metaphor here, if I lent you my car and you went out and DUI'd and totaled my car and you're like, Pastor Matt, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me, right? I can say, yeah, I forgive you, you know? I forgive you. Okay, but the car doesn't all of a sudden go Optimus Prime and fix itself, Right? Someone needs to pay for the car to get fixed. Okay? So, so how, what are we going to do with regard to, I forgive you, but how are we going to get the car fixed? God forgives us for our rebellion, but how are we going to fix this death and sin thing? Someone's going to pay for it. The seed of the woman is going to pay for it. The seed of the woman in paying for it will be bruised to his heel. He hangs on the cross impaled. He dies in our place. He rises up from the dead. And there in this moment and in his person, you have sin being eradicated and death being overthrown. By his death on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He purchased forgiveness for them. He, he fixed the car. Thus, the, the legal demands of God's justice are met and his people are given what they don't deserve, everlasting life. Speaking of his people, this brings us to the second uh, matter with regard to levels of enmity. There is an enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring. This means that Satan and the human race are enemies. The kingdom of darkness does not like humanity. The kingdom of darkness has to dupe humanity so as to gain a following, but to be sure, the kingdom of darkness doesn't like humanity. Uh, it makes sense given that God made us in His image. And so forces of darkness want to destroy the image of God. Uh, you know, if you're a teenager, you know, teenagers and you get a girlfriend or whatever and Back in the day before, uh, you know, phones and stuff, you, you get her picture, you know, put it in your wallet, show your friends or whatever, and then she cheats on you with your best buddy, and you take the picture and you rip it up, you know, it's like, I don't want to see her anymore, I don't want to see an image of her, get out of here, you don't want to see something that reminds you of that pain. The kingdom of darkness looks at humanity and is, and is tormented by us, for we are a reminder of, of what was lost by the forces of darkness, we are a reminder of the God that they're in rebellion against. Thirdly, there is an enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. A final level of enmity between this offspring of the woman's seed, which is an offspring not of humanity in general, but in specific to God's people. This gets us into Jesus' teaching in John 8. You, you, see, you see here in Genesis that God explains that humanity was divided into two camps. One is called the seed of the woman, and the other is called the seed of the serpent. Humanity is divided into two camps. And while, of course, well, we're, we're all physically descendants of the one woman, Eve, since she is the first mother of everyone, nonetheless, some of those physical offspring of Eve are spiritually in this promised seed, and they enter into the family of God, and others are spiritually in the seed of the serpent. That means that they will, like Satan or the devil, they will live as his nature is. 
They will reject the paternal love of God and God's will for their lives. Jesus teaches this kind of spiritual fatherhood here in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Uh, children who love their dads, they're going to want to do what their dad is into. You, you, we want your dad's attention. Hey, dad, look. Hey, dad, look. Uh, they end up mimicking you in ways. Um, being a father myself, you, you can see it. There's things my kids do that I do, and you go, oh, that was crazy. When you're in the kingdom of darkness, you live as your father lives because you want his support. And of course, those who are in it, they don't see this. They don't wake up in the morning, I can't wait to live for the devil. You know, they, they don't think this. They might not even believe in the devil, which is his greatest tactic, of course, because if you don't believe he exists, then he's very, he, he's, he can manipulate you very easily. Elsewhere in John's writings, uh, John, who's uh, you know, written this text for us, we have other texts that John has written. I'm thinking of 1 John. And in John's writings in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, look at this. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. He's of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay? He's been sinning from the beginning. The entire verse, let's read the entire verse, because I just kind of stopped it there. He's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared then, 1 John 3, 8, continuing, was to destroy the works of the devil. The victory over the devil and his works is accomplished on the cross of Calvary, where he disarms the principalities and he overcomes death. He makes that payment. He changes the car. He fixes. He repairs. In the Gospel of John, in the 12th chapter, we read, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world, speaking of the devil, be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up on earth, will draw all people unto myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He would be lifted up. He would be impaled on a cross. Jesus has come to fulfill the proto-angelion of Genesis 3.15 and more prophecies that followed it. He, he, has, he has come to end the war. However, the war of the seeds continues and Jesus is in the crosshairs of it in John 8 as, as he has these people who don't want him, who are attacking him. He's reminding them and us of Genesis 3, you are of your seed, you are of the Father of darkness. A further thing for us to see here is that the verse in Genesis and those teachings in John are telling us that these two groups are irreconcilable. Those who hate God will make war against those who obey God. Again, Jesus put it like this, John 15, verse 19, look at this. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. This is an important teaching for us because it reminds us it's not personal. It's not personal. You know, when I walk into Target and I'm attacked by the rainbows or whatever, you know, this isn't personal. When, when I, you know, I share my faith and someone shuts me down or I see someone on, on TikTok mocking Christians or whatever, you know, it's not personal. It's not personal. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We live in a world that's going to hate us for following after God. We live in a world where, you know, the, the very things that I'm saying, you know, would get taken down from YouTube. They're, they're going to shut it down. They're going to cancel it. Have you heard about the CEI? You heard about the CEI? Corporate Equality Index. It's a very powerful group that gives out a social credit score to businesses that can basically make or break their businesses. It, the CEI is overseen by the Human Rights Campaign, 
which is the largest LGBTQIA plus political lobbying group in the world. They've received millions from George Soros's Open Society Foundation, among others. Businesses that attain the maximum 100 points earn the coveted title, and I quote, best place to work for LGBTQ equality, end quote. 15 of the top 20 Fortune-ranked companies receiving 100% ratings last year, according to HRC data. James Lindsay, who's a political commentator, has called the CEI ranking, and I quote, an extortion racket like the mafia. We, we, they're, they're placing scores on groups with regard to what they believe about God and the human body and sexuality. They're using this so as to tear down and not just cancel, but totally shut down. It, it doesn't just sit back passively. The HRC sends representatives to corporations every year telling them what kind of stuff they have to make in order to get a high score. They give them a list of demands, so it is no wonder that it is in our faces. We can't even have Father's Day. I mean, what's a father anyway? What's a man anyway? It is interesting that Father's Day falls in a month that has now been dubbed Pride Month, which celebrates the undoing of fathers, the undoing of genders. This month, the cover of Glamour magazine is a pregnant woman who went through a so-called transitioning to become a man. You look at the cover and, you know, my kids are like, what's that? Uh, this, is a, this is a pregnant woman who chopped her breasts off and went through hormonal therapy to, to become a man. Trans, pregnant, proud, the cover of Glamour magazine says. Uh, inside, uh, I won't give you slides of what is on side. I, I'll spare you that. It shows a woman who's removed her breasts, who has scars, along with a baby bump, that somehow is, we're supposed to ignore the scars of the breast removed. We're supposed to ignore because she says she is a he. Biologically, biologically men can't get pregnant. Biologically, that, that's just not the case. The woman calls herself Logan Brown, and society is supposed to see her as a transgender man. The only problem, as I said, scientifically, only women and females can get pregnant. Further, uh, they can only get pregnant by males, or in some cases through artificial insemination of male matter. So in this case, Logan is in a relationship with a non-binary drag performer and TikTok star. In the article, Logan shares that she was going through some health issues, so she had to come off her transitioning testosterone meds. Uh, those, those meds are poison. And, um, it, there's no wonder, of course, you need to go off them. They're not good for your body. Big Pharma's making a ton of money, though, so you're not allowed to say that. And so when she went off the meds, guess what happened? She got pregnant. She said it was like, I want to quote here, it was like my whole world just stopped. That everything, all my manhood I've worked so hard for, for so long, just completely felt like it was erased. Men, you don't have to work for your manhood. You just are a guy. Now, you can work on being a better guy or whatever, but it's just what you are. Brown continued in the article, and I quote, It was really hard because how do you tell your partner, oh, I'm pregnant, but oh, I'm also your boyfriend as well? Science begs to differ. Reality begs to differ. The fact is only a biological female can get pregnant, and there's hundreds of millions of biological females who do this every single year to prove this is the case. So presenting this as a man getting pregnant is not only biologically impossible, it outright shows there is an agenda in Western culture to undo the family unit to undermine fathers, and to change the way we think about gender in general. Earlier I read the article from the New York Times by Esau McCauley. 
And, you know, he's sharing about his dad and an addiction and all the pain that he felt and just wanting to have a normal dad, and, and you think of that pain. At a societal level, we know you, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be a biologist to know what a male and female is, and you don't have to be a sociologist to know the impacts of not having a father are devastating in our culture. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who have uh, behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% uh, of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 70% of youth in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of youth in prison come from fatherless homes. Now, correlation does not equal causation, of course, and there are indeed people who, get, uh, uh, who succeed and they beat the odds. They, they don't have a dad and they beat the odds. It's, it's not an excuse for, uh, for said behaviors, but, but it is clear to show there, there is something going on here. Uh, there is something going on here. And as we lose fathers in Western culture, we are, going to, we, are going to reap, we are going to reap disaster in our culture. The politicians run around talking about how, how can we make things, what can we do, what do we, you know, throw money at our problems. One of the main issues for us is to actually celebrate fathers and actually stand with science in terms of this is what a guy is, this is what a girl is, this is what a father is, this is what a mom is. You go, well, I don't want to do that. That's, that's fine. You could, I'm not trying to infringe on your rights to do what you want to do. Um, the G's and the, the L's and whoever, they can do what they want to do. I'm not trying to impose, uh, you know, God's law on civil order. I want people to come to church on Sunday, but I'm not trying to make it a law that you get ticketed for. That would be horrible. You get ticketed for not showing up on Sunday. We're not trying to impose this on people. We want people to, to freely come to God and live their lives for God. But of course, there is no freedom to do that, according to what John 8 is teaching, because we're in the kingdom of darkness, but by the grace of God to rescue us. So continue back at the text. Verse 45, Jesus says, I speak the truth to you and you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God and for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. There is no fence sitting. This is not a both and. You're, you're in, in Satan's family and the father's family. You're in one or the other. Uh, God as Father, God as Father, what a powerful thing for us, especially with these statistics in front of us. You think about the power of having a father, think of the power of having the ultimate father. Interestingly, uh, speaking of God as Father, this month on Jeopardy, uh, this month on Jeopardy, there was a puzzle about the Our Father prayer. All three contestants got it wrong. They were, they were asked to complete a line from the Lord's Prayer. The riddle was worth $200. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, and this be thy name, fill it in. And they didn't know the answer was hollowed. Uh, you know, we're living in a time where, you know, people just don't know these basic things and see the amazing wonder. In John 8, Jesus is living in a time such as that, and he's reminding them of this. Further, he's engaged, the next point here, faithlessness and slander. He's engaged with people who are faithless and who are slandering him, but he's responding in grace nonetheless. Verse 48, look at the text. The Jewish people answered him and said, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? That's getting really hostile. They just ratcheted it up there. They took it there. 
They're trying to marginalize him ethnically. Uh, you, you might read past this and not think much of it, but uh, you might recall, uh, let, you know, let me remind you in terms of first century dynamics, the Samaritans and the Jewish people didn't get along with each other. There was a lot of ethno-racial, socio-cultural strife between those two groups. So in the Jewish community, Jesus being a Jewish man, one way you can marginalize him is by saying he's a Samaritan because of the ethnic tension. And people go, he's a Samaritan. Oh, I'm not listening to that guy because he's a Samaritan. They're trying to ethnically marginalize him. Elsewhere, we read in the Gospel of John and in Matthew that Jesus spoke with an accent. Look at these references. I'll put them in front of you. Um, in John 7, 41 through 43, in Matthew 26, uh, 73, for even the way you talk gives you away. In Acts 2, 7, Jesus' disciples, they try to marginalize him, saying, you know, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Because there was a, a Galilean uh, eth ethnic tone to the way you talk. In our culture, we have certain stereotypes with regard to certain accents. I'm not going to give any examples, <laughs> but... Uh, but, you know, you, you hear, you know, like, oh, you're whatever, you know, like we have stereotypes that get passed on to us, and so did the ancients. It's a racial slur. You're a Samaritan, and notice what Jesus does. He doesn't buy into the race baiting. He focuses on the daddy issue. Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he won't taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? This brings us to the final fourth point in the body of the message today, faith and salvation. And Jesus says, look at verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. It's not personal. The, the issue that they have is, is with God. It's with the Father's glory. Jesus is God the Son in the flesh who's manifested His glory, John 1 tells us. In John 17, when Jesus is speaking with the Father, He speaks of the glory that was shared between He and the Father before the world began. Glory refers to splendor and beauty and divine presence. Those who are in rebellion against God do not want to acknowledge his presence, his beauty, his love, his will for them. Look at verse 55. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. I know him. I keep his word. Keeping the Father's word inevitably brings conflict in the world. As, as John reminded us earlier, right? the, the world is, going, the world is going, to, going to hate you. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. 1 John 3.13. Jesus is modeling this for us. Verse, verse, look at the next verse, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Many centuries after God's command to Abraham, remember when, the scene with Abraham and Isaac, when he was to take his son? Jesus said in John 8, 56, your father Abram rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He, Abram, saw it and was glad. This is a reference to Abram's joy in seeing the ram caught in the thicket in Genesis 22. That ram was the substitute that would save Isaac's life. Seeing that ram, in essence, was seeing the day of Christ, the substitute for our sins. The one who would be caught not in a thicket, but nailed on a cross and die for us. Verse 57, so they said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus is probably in his 30s here, so it's a fair rejoinder, but they're obviously missing the point. 
Verse 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus' language here echoes God's self-identification of himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, Who shall I say is, is sending me? The I am. The I am is the one who sends you. And in John's gospel, he has these I am sayings that are significant in, in that they're showing, look, the guy that you're talking to, yes, he is a man of history, but he is God of eternity. Before Abraham was, I am. Let me land the plane. We've studied the text. We've come through and seen some things to surface it. And pastorally, my burden, isn't, uh, my burden is very specific. It's for the people of Delray Church and those that we minister to through our preaching and teaching in this church. I'm concerned that many Christians, as I shared earlier, can get sucked into the culture war and we forget the Great Commission. It's in our faces. It's in our faces. Uh, at the White House this week, the president invited hundreds of people to celebrate pride. Uh, there was a transgender actress and a model who raised eyebrows on, on Saturday by uh, burying his breasts. I know it sounds weird, but it was a guy who had implants and he's flashing the camera on the news. Rose Montoya, 27, was among hundreds invited to the White House for festivities where she, he, met the president and the first lady. Uh, he posted a picture of him meeting the president and, and then is seen on camera, you know, flashing. You, you got toplessness at the White House. You got it, just all kinds of stuff that's just in your face. And as a Christian, you're trying to raise your kids and you're like, what, what, you know, and it's in kids' books and it's, you know, and, and there it is on the covers of magazines. Uh, Rose Montoya on his TikTok after, you know, people were like, hey, maybe that was a little over the top. He said on TikTok, my trans masculine friends were showing off their top surgery scars and living in joy. I wanted to join them. That was his rationalization. Now with stuff like that, it's easy for a believer to, to, to just get into a bubble and throw your head in the ground like an ostrich or to get antagonistic and try to push back and, and kind of, you know, respond in a way that wouldn't be appropriate as Christians. In Glendale this month, uh, things erupted at the California School Board meeting. I don't know if you saw it. There was large fights, people getting arrested, hundreds of protesters who swarmed outside the school. Some were waving American flags, others were waving pride flags, and you know, there's all sorts of you know, people recording on smartphones, so if you missed it, but you could just, you feel the energy you feel that inclination for fathers in the room. As a father, you want to protect your kids. Mama bears in the room, you want to protect your kids. Parents just want schools to focus on academics and not a sexual agenda. As Christians, though, we are reminded in the teaching of John 5 that people are lost. People are in the darkness. Their ultimate problem isn't with us or our worldview or our ethics. Further, people are hurting. They're hurting. I quoted earlier the, the testimony of the brother who came out of that lifestyle, and he, he described the pain of it. People are hurting. Interestingly, Joe and Jill Biden told the crowd, and I quote, you are beautiful, you are heard, you belong. Are they beautiful? Absolutely. They're made in God's image. That's our, that's our call. You are beautiful, you are heard, you belong. And people like those words. The problem is, Jesus didn't just say that, he also said, repent. He also said, turn. And it wasn't because he was shaking a finger at people to be condescending and you sinner and he's, he's mean or something like this. The reality of acknowledging our sin is so that we can be set free. 
In, in, in North America, as slavery ended through a bloody war, there were many slaves, because there weren't televisions and social media back then, there were slaves after emancipation who hadn't heard the news that they were emancipated, who went on living as slaves, because they hadn't heard that there was freedom. Uh, the message of the gospel, it, to people who haven't heard th this, there's freedom. You can be set free. You can, you can be accepted. You, you can belong. Yes, you are beautiful. But there is a way that comes through repentance and faith. The world is going to cancel us, church. Be ready for it. Have compassion. Uh, this stuff is targeting our kids. We need to be wise. Um, we, we, we need to be wise with where we spend our money. This Sunday is a special day in our nation because it is Father's Day. And in light of this, I wanted to offer a biblical message from sacred scripture about the love of God the Father through the eternal Son incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth. And offer that message in comparison with the confused messaging of our culture in so-called Pride Month. As the culture wars are brewing in our day and people are canceling each other in masses, we gather today, church, this Sunday, in unity, to hear the good news of the gospel which levels everyone in the earth with the reality of sin and the exclusivity of God in Christ to do what He alone can do, save undeserving and undesiring sinners by His amazing grace. I'm so glad you're here this morning to celebrate our Father who's in heaven, who has made us sons and daughters in His family, who has, who has told sinners that they can be made beautiful in the Son and can belong. And so in response to His word this morning, we're going to come to the communion table. Our brothers and sisters are going to lead us in song. We're, we're going to sing and give thanks because the, the question, who's your daddy, has been answered in the Son. His Father is our Father. The, the contestants on Jeopardy couldn't get the line right, but, but when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to teach you guys how to pray, and he started it with, our Father who art in heaven. Think about how radical that is. My daddy is your daddy. Our Father. The Son is sharing His Father with us. How incredible. By the Spirit, He's reconciled us to the Father. And there could be some listening this morning, and uh, I don't know if something offended you or you, you don't know the Father. You, you need to hear that the point of the offense is to invite you into freedom and invite you into a relationship with Him. And we'd love to share more with you about that after the service if you'd like, but for now to... to uh, respond to the message of God's Word. Let's come to the communion table and let's respond in song and offering. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing and come to the table. Father, thank You that we have not been orphaned. Indeed, we've been adopted and rescued. We were once uh, children of the darkness, but you, you saw fit in Your Son to bring a rescue mission and to come and get us. We are so thankful for that. We were reminded in John 8 this morning that we would not see you, we would not hear you, we would be on the other side fighting with you, but because of you and your grace, we hear you. Father, we uh, confess though that though you've opened our eyes to hear, our, our eyes to see and our ears to hear, uh, Lord, we still feel the pull of sin and we're reminded of its chains. And we're prone to wander and prone to, to get ahead of ourselves and look at others and not have compassion. So Father, I pray that as we come to the table, 
we would be reminded of the payment that was done for us in your son whose body was broken and blood was poured out for us. And that we would be reminded that it's all by him and only through him. And Lord, that by your spirit, we would be drawn in repentance and faith in him. We commit these songs in this time of communion unto you. In the name of Jesus, amen.